Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 149, and Mpandi Ka and the Boers are going after Dingana. We're entering the 1840s, where momentous events would continue to shape South Africa's future. After Shaka's death in 1828, his half-brother and murderer, Dingana, was supposed to usher in stability. Instead, he had embroiled the Amazulu in one war after another, trying to defeat Mzilikatsi of the Amandebele, fighting the Batlokwa, the Amaswazi, the Boers, and now his own royal line. By ordering Mpandi's assassination, he had set off a chain of events that was going to boomerang on him, and the coming Zulu civil war had been in the offing for some time. He had also set off his own demise by failing to kill Mpandi, who then fled across the Tugela River with over 17,000 adherents and about 35,000 cattle. Mpandi had met Fortreka leader Andres Pretorius and negotiated with the trekkers as the man they now called the reigning prince of the emigrant Zulus. A Boer deputation of 28 men under the leadership of S. Ruiz had visited Mpandi at his homestead not far from Port Natal in October 1839, where he offered to pay them the cattle owed by Dingana, over 19,300, and ceded the Bay of St. Lucia to the Boers. Mpande had also promised not to undertake any military activity without Fortreka leader Andres Pretorius's knowledge. Then, as if to reinforce his power, he turned a blind eye to the killing of a much-feared Induna called Mpangazita Kankumbata, who was of the Amandwandwe people, Zwide's people. Mpangazita had become an influential and brutal Induna operating alongside Dingana, and one day he was killed in full view of the trekkers. This shocked the visiting Boers, who watched as the Induna was dragged, then beaten to death by a successive men armed with fighting sticks, his blue robe splattered with blood as he was bludgeoned. Mpande later said he didn't order this killing, and Pangazita had brought it on himself by his bully-boy tactics. The other Induna had had enough of this egotistical man who'd committed a long list of human rights abuses against other people over the past decade. Live by the sword, die by the knobkerry. By Christmas, however, the British were gone from the garrison at Port Natal. Captain Jervis had sailed away with the English administration, now mistakenly of the belief that the violence in Natal had dissipated. Then Dingana sent a famous message to the Boers in Pietermaritzburg by the end of 1839, trying to discredit Mpande. He is not a man, the messenger said. He has turned away his face. He is a woman. He was useless to Dingana, his master, and he will be of no use to you. Do not trust him, for his face may turn again. Coming from a man as pernicious as Dingana, this was rather hypocritical. Remember, the Boers had signed an initial treaty with Dingana in March 1839, after both sides began to tire of the continuous warfare. But the Boers formally repudiated this document on the 4th of January 1840, saying the Amazulu king had failed to deliver the cattle he had promised. That was true. Dingana handed back less than 2,000 cattle, along with a ton of ivory, most of the Boer horses and some of their guns, but dragged his feet when it came to his real treasure, his herd. The Boers, of course, were also intent on avenging the deaths of Piet Ace and Piet Retief and the hundreds of women and children killed by the Amazulu Impi the previous year. So Mpande and the Boers agreed that the campaign against Tingana 
would begin on the 14th of January 1840. The two forces would operate separately but simultaneously. Mpande's Impi was going to approach the Zulu king's new Ikanda, which he'd also named Ngudlovu, from the lower Tugela River, closer to the coast. Nongalaza Kanondela would lead this Impi. He was the chief of the Nyandwini and the most experienced general who had also fled into exile with Mpande. Just to make sure that everything was going according to plan, Mpande was actually going to march with the Boers, joining the commando instead, reinforcing the relationship, so to speak, while his men travelled on the coast. This meant he could keep an eye on the foot-trekkers, while they could keep an eye on him. Commandant Andres Pretorius led the commando of 308 Boers, 500 coloured and black achterais, 50 wagons, more than 600 horses and 700 oxen. Boer oral history speaks of a hunting party atmosphere. They were on their way to seek treasure. The fight against the Amazulu was not always the topic of discussion, but their cattle were. We have a brilliant journal and book kept by Adolphe Delgorge, a young French naturalist with a passion for information. Luckily for us, he also had a very keen eye and spent the following four years hunting and traveling around Natal and Zululand and into the Haarfeld. At the age of 16, he began to travel around Europe and North Africa. After reading the exploits of French explorer Lavalin, who had visited the Cape in the 1700s, Delgorge sailed to Cape Town at the age of 23. His descriptions of Trekker life are valuable, along with his experiences at Mpandi's court. Perhaps his most important notes were about the fauna and flora long before commercial agriculture and mining began to alter the land forever. Not that young Adolf was a conservationist. He hunted anything that moved. Elephant, rhino, leopard, nyala, crocodile, hippo, lion, you name it, he shot it. The skull of one of the rhinos he shot is still on display at the Galerie de Paleontologie et d'Autonomie Comparé in Paris. This young Frenchman was now riding as part of this Boer commando. He would be quite shocked when Andris Pretorius, who was notoriously conceited, compared himself to Napoleon. The trekkers took the high road, heading towards northern Zululand from the Imzanyati and Ngomi rivers, exactly the same route they'd taken the previous year when they'd fought at Blood River. Some were drinking and making merry away from their families. It was almost a party atmosphere, noted the Frenchman. He wasn't far wrong. In the annals of the trekkers, this commando was going to be named De Beers Commando, or the Cattle Commando. They were more interested in looting than shooting. Meanwhile, the Amazulu king was in a pickle. Dingana's attempts at expanding northeastly into the Amaswazi territory had failed miserably, and worse, the Amaswazi were now negotiating with the trekkers. Dingana and the Amazulu had created many enemies on the African felt, enemies who were now lining up to finish him off. The man who tried to stem the four trekker tides sweeping across the land towards him now faced oblivion. He was stranded at Mgungudlovu, near the Vuna River, near Tlutlui. So he shifted to higher ground and took control of Mugudu Mountain, which lies just south of the Pongola River, after setting fire to his great place, his usual scorched earth modus operandi. Mugudu Mountain is 15 kilometers south of where the town of Pongola is today, just west of the R66 highway. Leading Dingana's army was in Lele Kasumpiti, the old stalwart who'd been at his side since the death of Shaka, while in Lele's 2RC was Silwana Kanlovu. In Lele was the man who'd led attacks on the Boers on the Imzanyati, the Upper Tugela, Blood River, and he scoured the landscape. 
seeking an ideal battleground. Ntlela wanted to exploit the deep ravines and thickets of the nearby river, the Mkuzi. Ntlela ordered his impi of around 5,000 men across the river. They'd be fighting with their backs to the Mkuzi and the Impasini Hill, facing another group of hills called the Amakunko, which was going to give this coming battle its name. The landscape here is picturesque. The Amakonko are a series of round-top hills overlooking the plain to the north, undulating with enough space to move a large impi. While this was going on, by the 27th of January, the commander had struggled over heavy muddy ground enduring the rainy season and had reached the Sundays River. This is along the escarpment east of where Van Rienen's Pass is today, and not to be confused with the other Sundays River near Kalbecha. They were still more than 200 kilometers away from where Dingana's army awaited. They hadn't even got to the Ngomi River yet, Blood River. It was then that the messengers arrived who'd identified themselves as men from Nongalaza's army, wearing the two thongs of white cowhide suspended from their necks, hanging over their chests. While the foot-trekkers had found the going difficult, Mpande's men had already arrived at the Makoku. They had spent less time whooping it up and more time on a long-distance marathon march towards their enemy. Pretorius sent orders to Mpande to wait for him, which was a bit silly. Here he was, 200 kilometers away, making less than 20 kilometers a day, with heavy wagons and hundreds of cattle slowly edging towards the Amakotko hills, telling a commander of one of the most mobile armies of the time to wait. He was suffering from delusions of grandeur, as noted by Delgorge, the Frenchman. Still, the trekkers realized they needed to get a wriggle on, and then by the 29th of January, they arrived at the site of Blood River and saw the Zulu bones bleached in the sun, skulls lying scattered in the grass. Delgorge wrote about this scene. The Boers were back at the site of their major victory over Dingana, over a year since it had been fought. So it was ironic that at that very moment, as the trekkers cast their eyes over the detritus of history, Mpande's Impi had engaged Dingana's Impi at the decisive Amazulu versus Amazulu battle of the Amakonko hills near Pongola. It was a battle of spear versus spear. This was a seminal battle, folks. Two armies of around 5,000 men each, facing off in the first of what would turn into three major civil war battles involving the Amazulu over the next few years. Mpandi's Amabuto wore the two thongs of white cow hide around their necks to differentiate themselves from Dingana's Amabuto. Otherwise, they were identically armed. Amazulu oral tradition speaks of this battle. I'll come back to that in a minute. Wars are often won on morale before anything else, and Mpandi's men, although drawn up in a largely ad hoc basis when it came to regiments, had the upper hand here. They were advancing. Dingana's Impi had been in retreat, shoved from pillar to post by the Amabunu, then the Amaswazi, and now they faced their own brothers, and they were fearful. Ntlela's Impi, on paper at least, looked the better of the two. Dingana had pulled together the top-notch Amabuto, the Izanyozi, Inlambedlu, Mvoku, which had remnants of the Mkuluchani regiment. They had been joined by the Ukokoti, who had also been at the Battle of Blood River in Ngomi. Mpandi's general Nongalaza led Amabuta like the Imihai, who joined up with remnants of the Mvoku, who had switched sides, as well as the Mzwangindaba, who were a bit like a mercenary division drawn from the homesteads called the Umlambongwenya, Udukuza, and Isiklebe. Mpandi's army included the veterans Isipotlo, formed during Shaka's time. These were older men, scarred in battle, 
and seeking one more victory before they had retired to their Emizi. Not only were Mpande's men feeling more optimistic, they knew that somewhere to their west, the Fortrekkers were heading their way. Between these two organizations, most warriors fighting for Mpande were convinced they were going to win. The Kani Mpande had pulled off a diplomatic move of note. Had he waited for the Boers to arrive, he would have lost face. By striking first, he was waging war without the muskets and the horses. It would serve his political future to win outright, without help from the trekkers. This is where history-telling gets a bit messy. Since the battle, he has been castigated particularly by modern historians as a sellout, a man who did the bidding of the Boers. This, of course, is a major insult to a leader who read the political room and had outthought the Zulu king. In this time, 1840, there was more complexity than we like to think, and deploying an anachronistic approach to telling this story would be a big mistake. The narrative these days that Mpande was some kind of instrument of the whites is fallacious. He was using the Boers for his own personal ends. It's actually a dichotomy, a typical academic blind spot that seeks to disparage characters of the past based on modern imperatives. In Mpande's eyes, he was using the Boers as just one of the tools he had in his military toolbox in order to seize control of the Amazulu nation, just like he was using the British. Remember too, this was a man who'd been humiliated at virtually every turn, then who'd cultivated the impression of being an imbecile to avoid Dingana doing him in. He'd bided his time, bit his lip, until this very moment, when Dingana made the fateful decision to assassinate his remaining half-brother, Mpande's extremely advanced sense of place and timing kicked into gear, his stars were aligning. And align they did at dawn on Wednesday, 29th January, 1840. Both Amazulu generals sent scouts to locate each other, and Nlela's men were heading south towards Nongolaza's approaching warriors. Both sides spotted each other simultaneously. It would take four more hours, though, before the fighting started, midday on the 29th. Ntlela's men were drawn up in the standard shape, head in the centre, horns either side, with Impasini Hill behind them, while Nongolazas were based in a shallow saddle between two slopes of the Amakonko Hills to their south. There was an ace up Nongolazas' sleeve, at least according to oral tradition, and that was the defection of a most respected Sangoma called Matlungwana Kachoba, who'd left Dingana and joined Mpande. Spiritual skills, supernatural powers, all played into Mpande's narrative as Matlungwana began to doctor the army, setting fire to the grass ahead of the Amabuto, throwing his meds into the ashes. This would make the Amabuto more fleet of foot, they believed, and all the more so because Matlungwana was the most powerful war doctor in Zululand. On the other side, Dingana had told Ntlela that he would be watching the combat from a hill about 500 meters away. This was not unusual. The Amazulu kings often took up a position on high ground behind their army so they could intervene should the fight not go according to plan. It also meant they could run away if they sensed defeat. And Lela's usual tactic was to order regiments into battle section by section, monitor the fight, then when things appeared to go against him, he'd send other sections in as reinforcements. This was not what Dingana wanted, ordering him to change his tactics. The entire army should plunge into combat, deploying their potent power immediately. And crucially, Ndlela was going to ignore this command and ultimately would pay a heavy price for doing so. 
It was just after lunch on the 29th that the two armies began their battle, which continued for hours. This was civil war, brother versus brother, the most violent and extreme form of warfare. There was no mercy. And Lela sent in the Izanyozi first on the right, then the Idlambedlu on the left, leaving the centre open. Nongalaza had arraigned the Imahai against the Izanyozi, and they drove back Dingana's first assault. On the left horn, the Udlambedlu managed to push back Nongalaza's ragtag bunch of Amabuto. It was chaotic, the horns swinging back and forth, no side taking the advantage, fighting until the sun began to set. Inexorably, though, Entlela's men began to take heavy casualties, and then some of his men defected mid-battle to join Mpande's army. One man who remained etched in survivor's memory was Dingana's ardent Induna, a man who led the Udlambedlu, or Nozichada Kamagaboza of the Nzuza people. He fought so long and hard that his shield reportedly became soft from the blood of his victims. His right arm swollen and cramping, he switched his stabbing spear to his left, and eventually he was on his knees. Whoa, I'm exhausted, he is reputed to have cried out. Come close, stab me. I do not want to be ruled by Mpande. He got his final wish. As darkness fell, Ndlela's men withdrew, but they did not run. It was a fighting retreat. On the other side, Nongalaza's impi was also exhausted. Many slumped where they stood, in no condition to do any chasing in that moment. After about an hour, these men recovered and moved through the battlefield, finishing off any wounded enemy warriors they found. Then they began to fan out, searching for Dingana. They did find some members of his entourage, and killed them without so much as a buy your leave. One of these, unfortunately, was the remarkable woman, Dingana and Shaka's aunt, Bibi the Beautiful, Senzangakona's eighth wife. Yeah, in the rolling hills of northern Zululand, the incredible matriarch of this story finally ran out of time, hiding in the thickets alongside a stream which trickled past a hill called the Uvre. She was recognized by Mpande's warriors, but that made very little difference, Nongalaza's men killed her despite the fact that she was so highly respected. The killing shocked the Amazulu, not least Mpande, who had been quite close to his aunt. He had wanted the powerful Amakosakazi to work with him in the future of the coming political machinations. Killing her was not part of his plan. It was all the more terrible because hiding in the bush near her wasn't Lela, the general, who could do nothing to save her. He barely escaped with his own life. He was stabbed in the right thigh. The rest of Dingana's army was on the move to the north of the Amatkonko hills, making their way towards the Mkuzi River and Magudu Mountain. With them was the king, who had decided against trying to counter-attack because he was afraid that the Boer commander may be just around the corner. Then, Ndlela appeared out of the darkness, limping and bleeding. So, Ndlela, you have destroyed my impi. You have killed my impi and left it there, the king said, infuriated. He needed a scapegoat. So, you favor Mpande. So, you want to destroy me. Dingana turned to the young warriors nearby and ordered them to kill their general. Some threw their spears into the experienced general, wounding him, but he was still alive. Then Sofatra Kaambelekwana put an oxhide noose around Ndlela's neck, pulled it tight and beat the rope with a stick, tightening the noose until Ndlela succumbed and died. At least... He'd been executed in a manner designed for people of high status. But he wouldn't be buried like the men and women of high status. 
His corpse was cast out into the bush as carrion for the wild dogs and hyenas. Later, Mpandi would show more respect for Ndlela, lavishing a great deal of attention and cattle on the general's sons, Godide and Mavumengwana, and these two would become Mpandi's most important isikulu in the Amazulu southern kingdom. It's a warning to all politicians. You create generations of implacable enemies by murdering their fathers. As this battle ended, winding their way towards the Makonko hills was the Bias commando. By now, they managed to cross the White Mfulosi, but were still some distance from the site of Dingana's defeat. It was on the 30th of January they received word at the Mfulosi river that Nongolaza had triumphed over Ndlela, and Zobo had also been captured by the Boers by now, and it was time for him to face charges. The Boers stripped Nzobo naked and left him outside in the rain. Mpande, who was still travelling with the trekkers, called on Pretorius to execute Nzobo for his past crimes, not least the crime of trying to convince Tengana to kill Mpande on a number of occasions. The Boers wanted to do this legally, so set up a court and a judge, who also happened to be the counsel for the prosecution. The court-martial proceeded with Mpande and the other Izinduna giving evidence against Nzobo, all explaining how he had committed bloody acts against his own people, as well as Pete Retief and his party. Tingana had always listened to Nzobo, said Mpande, shedding a tear. Nzobo remained unmoved despite his treatment. He was impassive, staring ahead, or at his accusers, poker-faced. As historian John Labant notes, Prompting Dingana to kill Pitratif had been a catastrophic miscalculation, but his advice to kill Mpande was spot on, but too late. Nzobo, in typical dignified fashion, accepted his fate and then asked that his assistant in Duna, Kambizana, who was also taken prisoner, be shown mercy. The Boer court said no, both would die by firing squad. Pretorius then approached Nzobo, trying to convert him to Christianity before his execution, saying he should accept the redemptive powers of Christ. Nzobo refused, saying the only king he accepted was Dingana. If there was indeed some other master in heaven, said Nzobo, then he could not fail to be grateful to him for having performed his duty. Nzobo and Kambezana were tied together and led outside. They both stood facing the firing squad, staring at the trekkers' muskets. The muskets fired. Both men were knocked down by the first volley, but by some miracle, Nzobo was only wounded. Kambezana was killed. Nzobo stood up and, in what can only be called a moment of extreme bravery, turned and faced the guns once more as the firing squad reloaded and he was shot dead in the second volley. Later, Amazulu storytellers would spread the word that Nzobo had been tortured to death, tied face down at the back of a wagon and dragged. Other stories had it, he was placed on the spokes of a wagon wheel as it moved and died slowly. We know this is untrue because the people who watched the shooting included the somewhat neutral Frenchman who told of Nzobo's courage in the face of the firing squad. Now for Dingana, where was he? Little did the Boers know that they would never catch the Amazulu king, but his own days were numbered. Pretorius and his men continued riding into the lowlands though, straight into Tsetsifla and malaria country. This was not going to be good news for the Bias commando, as you'll hear next episode. You can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog where I'll load an update about this episode. You can email me from there or direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.
Thank you.